calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Perry Carpenter, one of the hosts of the Digital Folklore Podcast, and this is Digital Folklore Unplugged. Unplugged episodes are where we ditch all the fancy production and story elements and bring you the raw or only slightly edited interviews with our folklore experts. On today's episode, my co-host Mason Amadeus and I got to sit down with Dr. Andrea Kita. I'm Dr. Andrea Kita. I'm a folklorist and I'm a professor at East Carolina University. In this interview, Andrea provides her thoughts on the importance of being able to view world events and trends through the lens of folklore. We also hit on how both positive and negative forms of folklore arose during the pandemic. We look at folklore and public health, folklore and technology, and we also get to hear Andrea Kita's favorite urban legend. It's a fun and creepy twist on a classic. Okay, let's get unplugged. What has somebody who's made their career folklore excited these days? How do you keep it fresh? Um, oh, it's so easy because there's so many things happening. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the beauty of the Internet, right, is that we get to see things happening in in real time. Um, so it it's such a, a sort of a hyperactive form of folklore that it's not just, you know, I mean, it does happen still word of mouth as well. But, um, you know, it's so much driven by did you see this on the Internet or did you hear about this in the media? So, yeah. So I think we're excited about everything. <laughs> so. There was an article or a book chapter that you, uh, Trevor Blank, and Lynn McNeil did. Uh, looks like it released about two years ago, which means it may have existed a long time before that. But it's specifically getting others to take the discipline of folklore seriously. Give some insight there, because there's uh, that three-word phrase that you mentioned, at least in the abstract that I read, which is, that's just folklore, which is a way of kind of dismissing stuff. What's the heart of that paper, and what drove you to write that? Yeah, I mean, the three of us were were really passionate about getting other people to understand folklore, and and we worked a lot of times in areas where people didn't know that folklorist is a real job, <laughs> so, um, or they didn't think it was something that you'd have to get training to get. And and we certainly 
welcome amateur folklorists. Um, but we want to make sure too that people know that there is an academic discipline. Like this is this is something you can go to school for, right? And and, and you can get degrees in it and a PhD in it. Um, and all three of us have PhDs in it. Um, so yeah, we really wanted people to know that this is like this is a real career path. If this is something you're passionate about, this is something you can do as a living. You know, it's not just something you can do for fun or as a side thing and it's not taken seriously. It's it's a real academic pursuit. And we want to be welcoming because we know that so many of us got into folklore through ways that maybe we're a little embarrassed by now. <laughs> so, and I think that's the way most people get into it is they, you know, they're really passionate about mythology and they find out actually mythology is a little bit different than folklore or they're really passionate about ghost stories or, you know, something like that. And, and they don't realize that like, oh, hey, I can actually do this. Like, this is something I can do for a living and make money doing it. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that there's interesting paths and that there's um, a lot of welcoming for people who have uh, just have a passion about this um, that are they're amateurs. At the same time, there is a discipline for folklore and there's a need for rigor in some areas. And I've, I've seen you and others be very proactive, like on Twitter, uh, about correcting some of the amateurs who are a little bit sloppy, every, unintentionally sloppy every now and then. Can you, can you talk about the need to do that and, and um, kind of help folks like us who don't necessarily have the opportunity right now to go do this academically? How do we have the right guardrails and the right mindset as we do this? That's that's great. Yeah. And I'm glad that people want to do that. Um, it, it makes me really happy because I want people to be involved. But it's so important because, you know, there's so much stuff out there um, that is using folklore for, you know, some pretty nefarious purposes. And I think that's one of the things you really have to be careful of. And one of the things, too, it's like, yeah, it might be just this this cool little story, but there's a lot of context there. Like there might be meanings you don't know about or you're not aware of or, it, you know, it, especially, you know, when we think about some of the folklore that's happening right now, a lot of it's anti-Semitic. And that's really problematic, right? To, to just pass these things on and think, oh, hey, look at this cool thing without knowing that entire context um, where, that it might come from, you know, an older anti-Semitic legend. Or, you know, there's a lot of other things as well. You know, we want to be careful about what we're finding and not just being like, hey, look at this cool thing, understanding that you know, there's more than just that. Um, and there's so many places to find this. There's, there's actually a great resource called Open Folklore, which is entirely open, right? It, it's completely free and you can use it to find information. There's so many places to, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of libraries and librarians. They're amazing people and they can help you find things. The American Folklore Society is a great place to look for experts, but also to look for resources, too. They have a lot of great resources. Same with uh, the Library of Congress. There's an American Folklife Center there. And, you know, they have some really great resources, too. So there's so many things out there that are free that you can use. And so many of the, the journals and, you know, folklore is really dedicated to trying to get things back to the folk. So we've been really proactive about making sure our stuff is accessible and you know, a lot of our um, books, even after so many years, are free. Um, my book on contagion and contamination, uh, you know, I, I spoke to my publishers, which are amazing. And they said, you know, I said, hey, can we release something? Because a lot of it was about the pandemic. Can we release a chapter? And they were like, let's release the whole book for free. And I was like, OK, yeah, <laughs> like I'm in. All right. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of uh, it got released for free, you know, not even six months after it was published. So. 
that was, you know, really readily accessible. Um, and they were very open to doing that. So it's been so great to work with so many people that are really dedicated to having this content be free and not behind paywalls. And and there's a lot of a lot of times too, if you email a folklorist and be like, hey, can I have your article? They will send it to you. <laughs> so <laughs> please read my article. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're excited, right? <laughs> What then is like if you were to give a pitch for um, people who are in a position to make a pivot or they're early in their their decision for like what their career could be and they're they're in the college age or uh, maybe a midlife age where they can make a pivot. What's the pitch for doing this um, academically? Um, you know, I think there's so many things you can do with it. Um, I have friends that are are you know some of them are academic, some of them are public folklorists, so they go out and work with the public. They you know, they create content, they um, they run folk festivals, they work in museums. There's so many things you can do with this. And that's part of what attracted me to it. I, I knew early on I wanted to be a professor, <laughs> but I wanted to be able to do, I call it, you know, we call it applied folklore. So I want my stuff to actually be used. <laughs> so I want it to get out there. And, you know, I hope that, um, I know there are a few medical professionals that read some of the, my stuff on contagion and contamination. So I know that makes me so happy to know my stuff's being used. So there's so many different things you can do with it. And that's like, that's happened to me. I've even as an academic, I have given lectures every place from uh, a grand rounds <laughs> at a, a, like a university hospital um, to doing like just, you know, fun events where I've, I've gotten up and been like, hey, I'm a folklorist and you're a bunch of people that like the supernatural. And I'm going to talk to you for an hour. <laughs> and, and that's sometimes that's some of my favorite stuff. Um, one of my favorites, I did a lecture in London and it was for this big supernatural event and it was open to the public. And afterwards, like it was so funny because right before I went on, I was talking about Slenderman. All of these kids showed up and I was like, there's like all these teenagers here. And they like straight up thought I was a celebrity. And it was like the best day of my life. <laughs> nice. And they like they actually like brought they wanted my signature. I've never been asked for my signature before. <laughs> It was so great, but it was all like teenagers. And I couldn't believe it that they had come to this, like, you know, this open to the public, but academic event just to hear about Slenderman. And I thought, this is amazing. Like, that's why I do this. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, speaking of Slenderman um, and our show mainly trying to focus on the digital and the internet culture aspects of folklore, I think um, Trevor Blank's book about folklore and the internet was like a 2011 publication. Um, it was it's a little bit long in the tooth now, but you read the introduction of that, and what you sense is a frustration that uh, folklorists have been left out of conversations around, uh, and really the kind of the the shaping of how we think about online culture. Um, do you think that that's been rectified over the past twelve or so years? I hope so. I I think there are more people aware of it now. Um, although there can always be more, right? <laughs> I still run into too many people that don't know what a folklorist is. But yeah, there's there's so much that we have to offer that conversation. Um, and I'm so grateful that Trevor actually really got started. Like he started that conversation. So that's amazing and wonderful. And and, you know, there was that that very brief period where some academics, especially some folklorists, didn't want to think of the Internet as having folklore. But those of us who were actually on it <laughs> and saw what was happening was like, this is absolutely folklore. So, you know, once our discipline kind of was like, yeah, th this is it. Like, we get it now and we're all in. Um, you know, I think that that really was so important to get everybody on board. And now, of course, all folklorists really agree that that um, there's folklore on the Internet. So, yeah, I wish there's a little bit more people that knew about that, about, the you know, what folklore can contribute to that. But I've, I've done some amazing fun stuff with um, not just Slenderman, 
one year at, at my conference, I gave like one of the keynotes. So it was a very serious talk on reflexivity and COVID and medical folklore. And then I also gave a talk on um, the, George the cat. <laughs> so, that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that's why I love my discipline so much. And they were both taken completely seriously. We had a whole panel on George, like just an entire panel. And I was like, this is amazing. I love this. Um, and I love that I could do both at the same conference. And it's, and people are like, I went to both and they were both great. <laughs> so cool. That rules. Yeah, let's let's take a turn and talk a little bit about the kind of the the way that folklore manifests online, and you know what you talked about there was both um, serious and and at least from the the observation point of view, what might be frivolous expressions of of culture online. You've done a lot of work around the mimetic nature of of transmission of information, and I think both both how that can be a very positive thing and then also a very scary thing. Can you talk a little bit about your work in the public health space and and how folklore can shape public policy? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much that can happen. Um, Folklore has so much to offer public health and and vice versa. I think we can really work together really well. Um, And I think one of the big things that folklorists really understand is community. And we understand transmission and and how communities interact with each other. And that's, to me, one of the, the things I would love to be able to see more in public health. And I think they try, um, but it's hard. You can't come up with like one universal message that's going to really, you know, kind of stick with everybody. So doing that community-based work, I think, is so important. And that's hard to do, right? That's um, And that's why, of course, you know, when you hear like the CDC put out something, you know, they're they're making a general blanket statement and hoping at the local level, like more local places will be able to do something with it. Um, but I think that really that focus on the local and and trying to figure out, OK, how do we explain to this particular community what's happening? How do we address their fears and their needs and, and figure out what that is? Because it's different for different people. And I definitely saw that um, in the pandemic. So many things. And there's always two those moments too. you're like, oh, no, I was wrong about that. Um, <laughs> So you have to be like, okay, I'm going to be flexible on this. Um, And that's just it. Like that's, to me, that's great. That's learning, right? I, you know, okay, I tried that theory and it didn't work. Uh, So let's try something else. And, And to keep working in that sort of way, I think it would be great to see you know, public health and folklore come together a little bit more on that because we we are able to do that on the ground work that maybe a lot of public health, you know, they're they're kind of working up here with messaging and talking about those things. And I think the folklorists can kind of come in and say, okay, like how can we make this messaging more applied to this community or this particular group of people? Or, you know, are we contributing to fear by mentioning this thing? Maybe nobody thought about that yet. Like maybe we shouldn't say anything about that. We don't want to introduce fear, right? So we don't want to give them something to be afraid of. We want to to give them something that's going to hopefully help them understand, um, but also, you know, not in... uh, Give, give a sense of, okay, I'm going to be okay. Like I, if I follow these steps, I'm going to be all right. Can, can you give some examples of over the past um, few years, I mean, with the pandemic almost kind of recently behind us, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to decide where we really are in that thing. I guess let's go both sides. What was the most shocking thing that you saw about how folklore played a part in that? And then what was the most encouraging part? Yeah, I think um, the most shocking I shouldn't say shocking because it was, I kind of figured it was going to happen, but still seeing it is horrifying was seeing the anti-Asian hate that came out of this. And that was, that was horrifying to see. And I saw it even on a local level and it was, 
it was awful to see that, but I, I kind of knew it was going to happen because we, you know, we, we heard everything first about China. So I knew there was going to be a lot of hate about that and a lot of, of stories too. We always, and I don't know why we do this, but this is like such a classic urban legend thing. We always immediately go to what people eat as a way to define them as other. So it was like, we went right to bat soup, right? And then it was just, and that I think um, it both horrified and amused me at the same time because the picture of the bat soup still makes me laugh every time I see it. It's just like a little bat, like like hung on the side of like a bowl of wonton soup. It looks, it's just ridiculous. It's like the bat is parsley or something. It's just a garnish. Um, it was so like, oh gosh, you know, like I think every folklorist just went, oh, not this again. Um, because we've heard that story so many times about, you know, sort of othering people by what they eat and how that's different than what we eat. Uh, and of course, we eat a lot of weird stuff too to other people. So, you know, that's that's kind of a universal. So that I think that kind of stuff was the most horrifying to me during this. And additionally, you know, sort of my initial reaction. And then, of course, once vaccines came out, seeing how many people um, were were really anti-vaccine was personally frightening. I mean, it was it was frightening to me both as a folklorist and as an individual who was trying to survive the pandemic. Right. Um, so that was also like hearing and seeing that. But again, not shocking. I, I knew that was going to happen, but I was like, OK, well, what what path is it going to take this time? Um, you know, what are we going to be afraid of in particular this time? So that, yeah, that was the worst part. Um, I think the best part, though, was all the different ways that people adapted and the things that we decided to make a thing, you know, um, like we all got excited about making sourdough starters and <laughs> making masks and, you know, all these little things that we all got excited about and ways that we adapted and changed and you know, sort of pivoted and and did these different things. And I think that to me, that was so inspiring because I was like, oh, hey, you know, like, yeah, let's do a Zoom happy hour. Let, let's clap or, you know, bang something together in, in support of people who are, are, you know, out there trying to keep us safe and keep us fed and all of those things. I saw that and I thought, okay, yeah, people are good. You know, they're still inherently good sometimes. And yeah, we're trying. <laughs> yeah. Did you see um, memes and quick transmission methods playing a big part in either of those pieces? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, there were so many. And I think that was another place, too, where I saw a lot of people especially joking about their mental health. And and I think there is even those, you know, that sort of dark humor about your mental health is still in some ways healthy. Right. It's a way of talking about it. It's a, it's a way of kind of processing it. And so, you know, I, I see that as being really positive. But yeah, I saw the other things as well. I, you know, unfortunately saw anti-Asian memes. I saw, you know, a, against masking, against the vaccine, a lot of memes there. But then, yeah, you also get the, you know, like the joking about your sourdough starter failing and you're, you know, you get all these other things where you're like, oh, yeah. Um, and I think even now, like talking to my students and everything, I'm like, do you remember in the pandemic when we did this? And they're like, oh, my gosh, I completely forgot that there was like, you know, a week where we were all really into sea shanties. <laughs> I was like, yeah, we were for some reason. Um, so like that kind of stuff is is kind of yeah, that is hard. Like, it makes you do feel pretty good. But yeah, there's memes about that. There's there's all kinds of stuff out there. Um, I particularly enjoyed some of the the boat that blocked the Suez Canal. <laughs> some of the memes yeah. about that. That was really funny. Um, that too. Wow. It feels like a lifetime ago. It does. It feels like so long ago. And yet that was like we all got really into that for some reason, because what else were we going to do? So yeah, I think we did we did some really cool ways of being together without physically being together. And I think that was really cool how adaptable we were. 
So you mentioned the kind of the intersection of urban or, or contemporary legends with these kinds of things. Are are there any from an academic standpoint or just an intellectual curiosity standpoint? Was there anything other than like the uh, uh, you know using food to other people examples that came out of that? There are so many. I mean, we saw so much blame happening, um, and that's very typical during a pandemic. Um, and in part, we blame people because um, if we look at somebody in their activity. And we can say, okay, if I don't do that, I'll be safe. So that makes us feel good to blame other people because we can, we can. It's a way to contain it for us and make it make us feel safer. It's not good, but unfortunately, it's what we do. But there was so much of that going around. I mean, we we saw the anti Asian hate. Um, there was a lot of hate against large gatherings, even when that gathering was something important, um, like a wedding or a funeral or you know something along those lines. The super spreader events became a thing. And we got pretty judgy about what was a good event versus a bad event, like what you should have skipped versus what you should have went to, not really recognizing that we were all, you know, participating in some form of risk, right? We all took risks during these times. Um, and for some people, you know, that was important. Protesting was important. Um, you know, we, we saw the Black Lives Matter movement really, you know, just go out in mass um, and, and protest. And, and some people critiqued that as being a super spreader event. But there were, you know, in, in the end, we found out most of those people were masked. It didn't turn out to be so bad. So there are so many things that um, we saw with that. Um, like I said, the blame um, also kind of extended. Uh, this is kind of a fun local fact. Um, if you remember, you might not, but in 2020, there was um, uh, this story about a university that brought the students back and they had a 400 person party. And that was my university. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, our student, and, but of course, they were doing what students do, right? If you take a bunch of teenagers and don't let them see their friends for months and then put them together, of course, they're going to have a party. And we've all been to that party that got out of hand, right? That started off, it was only going to be a couple people and somebody called somebody else. And next thing you know, the party's out of hand. And that's exactly what happened. And there was all this blame on the students instead of the administration for bringing them back or for, you know, there's so many other things that we could have blamed in that situation other than the students, but they were the, the scapegoat kind of in that. Should they have had a party? Absolutely not. Um, should we have brought them back to campus? Probably not. <laughs> you know, that was a little too soon, I think. Yeah, human nature kind of takes control in those situations. And yeah. Communities want to do what communities do, which is exactly. get together. Right? Yeah. Exactly, especially, you know, and, and we're talking about people whose brains are not fully formed yet. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's that's just what they're going to do. So, it, you know, it wasn't a huge surprise when it happened. So, you know, we saw that kind of stuff. Uh, we saw a lot of folklore about the origins of the pandemic and how it started. Um, we're still hearing about that, the lab leak theory, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so that gets into conspiracy theory, too, which is always fun. <laughs> well, it used to be fun. I don't feel like it's as much fun as it used to be. <laughs> Back when, you know, we just thought there's no, you know, they didn't land on the moon. That was, you know. <laughs> More of our interview with Dr. Andrea Kita after this. Hey, listeners, if you're like me and enjoy escaping to a real movie theater, then Regal Unlimited just makes sense. It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. You can see any standard 2D movie anytime with no blackout dates or restrictions. And your membership lets you get into premium format shows like IMAX and 4DX at a reduced cost. Plus, you'll save 10% on all non-alcoholic concessions. Regal Unlimited 
It's the all-you-can-watch movie subscription pass that pays for itself in just two visits. So, if you're planning on seeing a couple movies this month, join Regal Unlimited. Now is the best time as summer's coming up. Sign up now in the Regal app or on the website at regmovies.com slash unlimited. And be sure to use the code FOLKLORE24 to get 10% off a three-month subscription. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey ya, Mason here, and I don't think I've mentioned it on the show before, but I have two cats, two big old boys named Chester and Cinders, and I love them both very much. But I didn't grow up with cats, and I've never suffered from general allergies like pollen, so it took me an embarrassingly long time to realize that I was allergic to them. No joke, when I started working from home, I would say things like, wow, I feel like I'm losing my voice every day, or isn't it weird, I can't breathe through my nose for some reason. Ultimately, it was my partner who said, that really sounds like allergies, and long story short, now I take a Claritin every day. Luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Welcome back. And I was one of the people, too, that was looking at all these health sites way before the pandemic and saying, hey, guys, I think we should pay attention to this because this is they're putting out a lot of bad health information. And, and you know, it's all clickbait kind of stuff. So they're getting the clicks. They're getting, you know, the, they're getting monetized. And that's why they keep doing it. Um, and that's how the stuff kind of started with with, I think, some people's real beliefs that certain things were good or bad. But then it got really out of control and and people realized you can monetize this. And, uh, you know, and that's really when it kind of spun really out of control. Um, but that's, you know, kind of led us with the modern anti-vaccination movement now. Now, we've always had an anti-vaccination movement. It looks remarkably similar throughout time. Again, that it, because of the Internet, it gets out there so fast, which it didn't, you know, in the past. That was that was stuff you had to be on specialty lists and you had to, you know, you had to know the right people to know this stuff instead of being able to to Google it and find it in almost no time. Well, and then also, I think on certain platforms, you have the algorithmic encouragement of that. As soon as you go to, uh, you know, one of the places that I saw it start to spread was Instagram and with people that you wouldn't necessarily think would be conspiracy theorists or people that would be anti-vaccine, they might be into um, exercise or something like that. And then it would spread into supplements again, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but then it would spread into something else. And then all of a sudden it's full on every form of weird conspiracy you can think of, including QAnon and potentially worse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What does it feel like being somebody who studied this kind of movement and then just watching it online? Because you were talking and writing about um, vaccine conspiracy probably at least a decade before that I'd seen. Yeah, I, I started studying this in 2003. Wow. <laughs> That's when I wrote my first paper on it. Um, so it's been a long time. Um, yeah, I can't believe it's been 20 years. Um, yeah, so watching this kind of slowly unfold was uh, yeah it's sort of horrifying it's it's sort of like watching a car accident about to happen and knowing there's nothing you can do about it um in some ways and, and in some ways the car accident was already happening right like it was you know it was already in progress long before i started studying it um so that was 
that was really difficult. And, and knowing especially that we're, we're talking about vaccines, which are one of those things that it, it's so hard to show that they're helping you. Like, I don't know how many times I haven't gotten COVID. I just know how many times I've gotten it, right? <laughs> but I have no idea. You know, I'm, I might be actively not getting the measles right now, and I have no idea because I'm vaccinated. So the success of vaccination has almost also been its failure, which is kind of sad. And, you know, and for a long time, I really believed that if people saw disease, they would be less anti-vaccine. <laughs> Turned out I was wrong. <laughs> so, well, that's one of those places. And I mean, I was wrong and I was right, because I think the people who really had personal experience with it that had, unfortunately, a family member die who ended up in the hospital or had just even had a really bad incident of COVID, um, a lot of those people did change their minds. Um, they did see, you know, the disease as being worse than the vaccine. Um, so they, they went and got vaccinated. Um, but other people, not so much, you know. And then with having a new type of vaccine, even though this was being studied for a long time, the mRNA vaccine being new to at least the rest of us, you know, that was, I think, especially scary to people. And, you know, and I still I say this all the time. I'm like, you know, 50 years from now, we're going to be talking about how amazing the mRNA vaccine, like it's going to be like, you know, like finding antibiotics, right? It's going to be like that level of medical importance. And we still really don't really recognize that. But I'm, I was, so excited when I first realized this. I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to bring out the mRNA. This is amazing. I'm so excited for this. But I knew that people were going to be scared because it's new. And, you know, they'd be worried that it was untested when in reality, you know, it had already been, you know, in testing for like 10 years, just pretty standard for vaccines. So yeah, knowing that that was also hard because I was like, oh no, people are going to be like, they're going to be worried about this, but this is such a flexible way of doing this. And like, such an amazing way of doing it. And then, of course, too, when we had other vaccines coming on the market, so like especially the J&J vaccine, which did not need the specialized storage. I was so excited about that. So I was like, this is amazing. We don't have to have special ways of storing it and, you know, all the infrastructure that you need to have to have those things. But then I was like, oh, no, people are going to think of it as being like a second class vaccine, whereas it's not going to be as good as the other ones because it's going to be used in rural areas, especially. And there's still this idea that you know, when we, we don't treat rural areas as well as we treat other places. So, yeah, it seems like there's a convergence of other interesting conspiracies at the same time. So it wasn't just the vaccine. It was that there might be a microchip in the vaccine and that Bill Gates and everybody else is involved. And there's patents that have been filed decades ago. And um, at the same time, the 5G thing became a big deal, especially in the UK. What do you think contributed to that confluence of conspiracy? Is it just that we had more time on our hands because we're all stuck at home? <laughs> that might have been part of it. Um, yeah, for sure. I think maybe we were reading because we were all reading, right? We were all reading and listening and trying to find out more. So I think, unfortunately, we found that information too. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, there's always, anytime anything new is introduced, there's always going to be that like little bit of fear about it where you're just like, uh, what? Okay, what? This is new. Like, I don't know anything about this. Is this going to affect me in some way? Because you just don't know. So I think every bit of technology, there's always that little tiny fear. And maybe it goes away really quickly. Like maybe you use it and you're like, oh, this is great. And you just totally forget about it. But there's, there is always that. And we've always seen that too throughout time. Every time new technology is in, invented and brought to, to the public, 
you know, there's a little bit of anxiety about it. And, you know, and I think we we transfer the same legends to new tech, which I think is also hilarious. Um, so the same way that, you know, you were probably, I was told at least as a kid, don't just sit too close to the TV or it ruin my eyes and don't use the phone during a, a lightning storm and all that kind of stuff. You know, that's what we were heard about cell phones. Then later, I remember the same thing like, oh, if you put your cell phone in your pocket, you'll get cancer. The same as sitting too close to the TV was going to give you cancer and the, or their microwave was going to give you cancer. So it's all the same stories just applied to the new tech. Um, so that's always interesting to see how that kind of works out. And in this case, it was, yeah, we decided to throw in some microchips and some 5G and, and it just turned into this this perfect storm of, well, why now? Like, why are these things there now? And it's like, oh, well, you know, 5G really helped people stay connected, um, especially a lot of people who were in rural areas or that were, you know, in, in areas where the Internet was being used so much, um, especially for kids going to school. This was a great way for you know them to stay connected. So it was like, well, this is great, but not everybody saw it that way because it was all new. Unlocked an old memory of being told not to watch the microwave, which I completely <laughs> forgot about. Right. <laughs> all all of those don't stand too close to the microwave. Don't sit too close to the TV. Don't put your cell phone in your lap. It'll be sterilized type of thing. Or, yeah. Something something I would be curious about your opinion on before we move too far past it is um, when we were talking with Lynn McNeil, one of the things she brought up was how folklorists have kept a non-interventionist stance in a lot mm. of things and yeah. whether or not that might change and that that's sort of a, an identity crisis going on in the field. I was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I I think so. I am I'm on team. Let's go out there and and support people and you know join in on these things because I I think regardless of when we study something, we affect it. Right, just our presence there is going to affect it. So we've always been that way, and I think folklorists have been involved. Um, we've been involved in labor movements in the '60s and '70s. You know, we've been involved in civil rights. We've been involved in this stuff all along. It was just we weren't supposed to talk about it, right? Um, but we were all doing it. So um, so I think like folklore has been really progressive in that way and that that it supported these people as it also studied them in some ways. Um, so, you know, we've got a long history of like looking at like a labor song and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. Um, so we've always been there and we've always been supportive. We just haven't talked about it. Um, and that was hard, especially for me, because I really wanted to understand people who don't vaccinate. So I didn't want to alienate them in any sort of way. And I kind of felt like I could do that, right? Like I could do that by accident, just by saying that I was pro-vaccine and I've always been pro-vaccine. So I just kind of like didn't say much. I just, you know, I listened and I did the things I was taught to do, right? Um, but uh, the, the fact is I always had a stance, right? I just maybe didn't talk about it. And then I also realized because of that, everyone hated me. <laughs> so, oh, no. Absolutely. It was so funny because, um, you know, a lot of, of pro-vaccine people thought I was giving these people too much of a voice. I wasn't giving them, I, you know, by via trying to understand them that I was validating them, which was not my goal. And then the, the people who were anti-vaccine were like, well, why aren't you saying the, the vaccines aren't, aren't safe? <laughs> I'm like, that's not what I believe. Um, so, yeah, so I kind of got hated by everybody, <laughs> which involved a lot of bad things on Twitter. But, um, yeah, so I, I kind of realized even before the pandemic, I was like, I need to take a stance on this. So um, I started doing it with my flu shot. I started taking pictures of myself getting my flu shot and saying, you know, here it is. Here I am. Somebody that's, you know, that does this work and is getting vaccinated. And it was funny because I got I got um, threatened. I was told by someone that I was just getting injected with saline. And I was faking the whole photo. <laughs> 
and all this stuff. And I was like, oh God, I cannot win. <laughs> so yeah, there was, I, that's kind of when I realized there was really no way to win. Um, but it was funny too, because a lot of times I think in that place, being a folklorist actually worked in my favor because especially when I wanted to talk to medical professionals, because they were like, oh yeah, that's why you're studying it. Cause you're a folklorist and you study things that aren't true. And I was like, well, that's not a hundred percent it. <laughs> you know, That's not, the, that gets back to that triviality idea. I was like, but for them, that was like, oh, that makes sense. So I was like, all right, I'm going to work with this. And, you know, so doing that kind of work, I, I think has become increasingly important, especially because we've realized and we've seen how bad these things can get. And, and so it's not just the fun conspiracy theories of, you know, which were never completely safe, but, you know, they were, they, they were, they seemed more harmless and they probably weren't, but they seemed that way. And I think we kind of thought of them as this sort of like almost sideshow kind of thing, right? They were not the dominant narrative. We weren't worried about them. And I think now we need to be worried about them. So I think that's also part of it is that we've had to, we've, we've entered a world where we have to take a stand. We have to say, hey, that's anti-Semitic. Um, or, hey, your resources aren't the best. You might want to look at these books, right? And, and I think that's what I try to do is guide people. I'm like, hey, yes and no. Here's a great resource. Like, try this out, you know? <laughs> so I try to be positive, but because I mean, if you're a negative expression in a place like, you know, an online forum or Twitter or any place like that, people aren't going to respond well. But if you respond with positivity, people sometimes listen, right? And they don't always, but sometimes it makes a difference. So I'm interested in, um, over the past several years, have you had any observations over the way that different folk groups work, um, or, or, uh, coalesce on different platforms and what the output of that is. It's for, you know, Twitter versus Reddit versus 4chan versus Facebook. Yeah, that's an interesting question. There, there's definitely some differences in, in how people interact and what happens. I look a lot at comment sections on news articles, which a lot of times now are being shut off. So I was like, oh, probably best for society, but terrible for my research. <laughs> <laughs> Those are some of the most Wild West comment sections. Oh, they yeah. are, yeah, the stuff I've seen on there, I'm like, what is even happening right now? <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they get pretty wild. Um, so yeah, that that was definitely a place where, I, yeah, I think the Wild West is a, a great metaphor for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what happens on Twitter, um, how people feel anonymous in these spaces when they're really not, um, I think is really interesting. Um, and I've I've actually... A little bit, a little part of me has kind of a little bit enjoyed when people get called out for saying and doing things they shouldn't be doing, especially on like, I was, you know, pretty active on Twitter for a while. And yeah, that was one of those places where, um, especially I got so many death threats and, and I knew I was getting like a 10th of what like other people were getting. I was, I, you know, I'm still like, not like I'm one of the, like the main people that get called, you know, I'm still like, people are still discovering folklore. So I'm not first on the list those people are getting nonstop death threats, um, whereas I just get a few. So yeah, so I, I think I haven't gotten death threats on any other platform, which is kind of interesting. Um, I'm not terribly active on, on some other platforms, but I was on Facebook for a long time, never got a death threat being on Facebook. Um, you know, I, I got people disagreeing with me and that was fine. And I'm fine with that. People are allowed to disagree with me. But yeah, I, I, I really saw that, that some places could become really toxic places really quickly. Um, Twitter was unfortunately one of those places and it's it's not gotten better over time. Um, yeah. And sometimes you get on like a Reddit forum and it, it's going good. And then all of a sudden 
like it, it gets really bad. Um, so yeah, I think that potential is out there. And you have some people that are are doing it because it is their conviction. Um, and then you, of course, get bots and you get, you know, or people that are just doing it for the old and, you know, those kind of people that are, are out just spreading chaos and, you know, not realizing that this this affects real people, right? That they're actually causing real damage and real harm. So that's, yeah, that's scary. Do you think there's a link to like the, I guess, the health of the culture or like the the positivity of the culture on a platform that is sort of shaped by that platform's actual user interaction in terms of like how easy it is to make accounts, um, yeah. the kinds of content you create, the hmm. affordances the platform has for remixing and reusing content, things like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think certain platforms do lend themselves more to being able to make a really easy fake account. Right. And if you can make a really easy fake account, you're going to get a lot of people that are using those for not good reasons. Um, so I think, you know, if you can have some way of backing this up, making sure it's a real person, um, you know, some way of, of verification other than just like an email or something like that, I, I think you can have a better discussion. I, th I think people will have real world consequences. Right. Um, a platform that makes you use your real name right? <laughs> it would definitely be, I think, a totally different place. So yeah, I think there are, there are things that platforms can do to make these things better. Are they doing them? Not necessarily because some people don't like that. Um, but yeah, there there are there are ways that I think platforms can certainly do a better job at these things. But I also think there are there there are interesting insights still into culture, even when they're bad. There's still an interesting insight, and this is one of the the things I've actually said about bots. Is I think. You know, even if it's a bot, it's still programmed by a human, right? And that human still knows folklore. <laughs> so, um, so they're still, you know, and yeah, some of them are just throwing some stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks, but they still know what to throw at the wall, right? Like, so there's still that that human element even in a bot. Now, what the bot does after it's been programmed <laughs> sometimes is, is chaos and disorder. But yeah, there there are different ways to to look at these things and see, okay, well, what what is the culture afraid of? I think is the best, clearest thing we can get out of all of this is finding out, okay, this is what people are worried about. And in a public health situation, that's a great thing to know, right? That's super useful. Um, but in, in other situations, oh gosh, the hate that comes out is sometimes really bad. After the break, the conclusion of our interview with Dr. Andrea Kita. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back. I'm really interested in, as somebody that's a professional folklorist, like, what is your favorite contemporary legend? Oh, that's a good question. I like a lot of the ghost stories. <laughs> so maybe maybe talk about one of those and then talk about what makes that significant, either to you or to, like, what's the cultural mirror that that's trying to bring out? Um, you know, one of the ones I really like, and it, I do love a good ghost story, um, I love the Vanishing Hitchhiker legend. So that's the the picking up the hitchhiker, finding out they died 10 years ago on that night. I love that one. And I think in part I love it is for a super nerdy reason. Um, it's one of the ones that we can trace back. And we have versions of it, not only on horseback, but on people walking next to each other. And and they are walking. And a lot of times, like in the older version, it's like they're walking past a graveyard and this thing happens. My favorite version, though, is a horseback one. Um, it starts off with this guy sees a woman outside of a cemetery. Um, she looks desperate for attention. He is on horseback. Um, and she says, well, I need to get to this town. And he's like, well, that's where I'm headed. So he picks her up and puts her on, on in front of him on the horse. And he assumes she falls asleep because she kind of becomes heavy. And then as he rides through the night, when the sun rises, he realizes that she's a corpse. Oh, oh it's so good, right? Oh. <laughs> so creepy. That's, that, yeah, that's a variation of that I haven't heard. Ugh. Yeah. I it's, like that. That's a great yeah. variation. I love that one. Um, yeah, because it's just so creepy. All the other versions, she just disappears, right? But this one, she's like a live, like she's alive, but then her corpse is like there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, yeah. That, that's, you see, I can make anything dark. There's always some kind of undercurrent of why this thing emerged. Why do you think that that one emerged the way that it did? It really, I mean, it's obvious one is like, don't pick a hitchhikers, right? Right. Um, so that was kind of like telling you that. But I think there is something there because we've all had that that moment where we're like, should I stop that person? Like, they look like they need help. Like, should I stop? And that tension, I think we feel not only driving and seeing a hitchhiker, but we we feel that tension even when we see, you know, someone start choking or so, like, you're like, am I supposed to do something? Right. So it, it speaks to that tension of, is this the moment where I step in? Um, and you never really know. because There's always that that part of you that's like, maybe somebody else knows better, like is better at CPR than I am and they should be here. Maybe there's a doctor here, right? So you always have that moment where you're like, am I supposed to do this? Is this safe too, right? And there's that also that issue of safety, especially stopping for somebody. Um, but I think it also reflects in other ways that we help people. It's like, is this the right thing to do? Or am I going to put myself in danger by doing this? So I think it speaks to that tension of like not knowing what to do in that particular situation. Um, do I stop and help someone that looks like they need help or is this going to end up horribly for me? And it this is like a story about how it ends up horribly for you where you're psychologically damaged, but not necessarily physically harmed. So it, it also lets you know, too, like and, and I think this is so true, especially when you're a kid and hearing these stories. Um you know, when I was a kid, I was told, like, don't go out in the woods by yourself. You're going to fall and hurt yourself. And of course, as a child, I was like, I'm not going to fall and hurt myself. Um, but if you told me if there was like a witch out there or something, I'd have been like, oh, don't go in the woods. Right. That seems so much more real when you're a kid. And I think that's like that's part of why that story is told is it's not just like you're going to get murdered. Um, it's the you know, you're going to meet a ghost and this terror like you're going to be scared and all these terrible things are going to happen. So it's like 
even though it's like the least likely scenario, <laughs> it's the one that sticks, right? It's the one that you're like, oh, I'm not going to forget that. I love that. I've not heard that horse one with, with the actual corpse. That is. Uh... Um, yeah, I also have a really good one. I actually collected years ago um, from somebody who um, thought they picked up an angel and had told this really interesting, like the angel had asked them what they had been worried about. And they had talked about them with it and they actually felt better afterwards. And like right after they like they were like, OK, I'm, I'm getting out here. And they went back to look for them and there was nobody there. <laughs> That's another good one, too. They also had a backpack. So it's like a physical item, too, that, that they threw in the back of the truck and picked back up. So it was like there was this physicality to the legend, too, that it wasn't just your imagination. You know, it, this thing really happened. Great story. <laughs> Something I'm I'm interested in, and and it, we we talked briefly about it with with Lynn too, was AI and uh, folklore that's emerging around AI. Because like Loeb was, I think, one of the most prominent examples we've seen of that. But there's obviously a lot of societal anxiety around artificial intelligence, and I think that might be something we end up touching on in season two, right, Perry? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, we, we have a lot of uh, things around those types of topics that we're tentatively wanting to explore if we can find a, a good treatment for it. So if is that something that has piqued your interest or come on your radar at all? Yeah, AI has been really interesting, especially as a professor, because, of course, that's, a, you know, the big thing we're worried about. Right. Um, so, you know, the students writing their papers that way. And and, you know, I always every time anybody starts being like the Internet's terrible, I'm always like, Whenever they think about it in those terms where people say AI is terrible, I'm always like AI is a tool, right? Mm -hmm. We can use it for good or bad. It's us that is good or bad, right? Yeah. Not, the, not the thing itself. Yeah. AI is neutral. People are terrible. Yeah, people are terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, so what we put into AI, it reflects us, right? Um, so yeah, as a professor, it's something we've we've always thought about. So I always try to think, okay, what's the opposite side of this? And and, you know, it's a good way to start writing um, for a lot of people, especially who have anxiety about writing. You know, it gives them a paragraph to start with and, and to edit and to do something with. And, and it, it takes out that anxiety. And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's a great way to use it in the classroom. Also, I've used it to be like, look how wrong it is. <laughs> like I pulled up, I was like, write a bio for me. And it like listed all these books I did not write, <laughs> like all this other stuff. And I was like, yeah, see, guys, like I didn't write that. That's not me. That's not where I was born. This is, you know, like, this is just wrong. Um, like, try it for yourself, see if you get anything. And they're like, oh my God, this is so wrong. And I'm like, yes. So, this is what, you know, this teaches you that this is not always the best thing. So, if you choose to use it, you have to realize and you have to look this stuff up. It might be easier to just write your paper. <laughs> um, so that, that, and also I think you can design um, assignments around this kind of stuff. I have people interview people. So it's like, well, guess what? You're doing it on camera now. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, There you go. That's what, that's what we're going to do. Um, so, you know, and they were excited about it. I'm like, but that's the way I know it's not AI. So, you know, I think there's ways we can use it. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's a lot we can do with it. In positive ways. I, you know, and I, I think the thing that bothers me the most is when it creates art. I love on a, a personal level, I love how uncanny some of that art is. Because <laughs> some of it is just like, oh, wow, that is messed up. Why does that thing have that many fingers? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. But, you know, for me, I, I, I worry about that for artists because I know artists already have trouble making a living. I, I want to support them in that way. Um, so uh, like that kind of stuff, especially when they feed an artist's art into AI, I'm like, well, that's pretty unethical. Um, so that kind of stuff. Again, though, that's all people, right? That's not the thing. Um, so yeah, I think it, it can be used for good and for, for evil, right? Um, so 
Yeah, I think we need to be conscious about it. And we need to, to think about ways like as a professor, I just need to think about, okay, well, how can I use this? How can I show people these are its strengths and weaknesses? This is what it does. Um, you know, so yeah, maybe it's useful in some ways, but it's not going to be useful in others, right? But if you need help getting started or, you know, something like that, you can use it, but you have to double check everything, right? And it's going to get better over time, but you're still going to have to double check things. Like you can't just put out something. Like, can you imagine a journalist just writing something in AI and submitting it? Oh, it would not work, at least in some places. <laughs> but then, yeah, this might be a new way for people to, to write more content for clickbait, you know? Um, that's an that's a possibility as well. So we have to be careful. Yeah, I'm sure that's happening now. But you know that you mentioned some interesting things. So that the AI hallucination, just where it states supposed facts with confidence. There are uh, there was OpenAI, their own safety team did a report on Chat GPT four, um, and it was really interesting. Some of the findings that they had in that because they were actually able to to trick it into tricking a human into giving uh, CAPTCHA responses. So they basically took some of the parameters off and and then said, your objective is to do X. And some of that was like behind a paywall. And they gave it access to funds and it contacted somebody on one of these, it's like a Fiverr site, um, and said, I need you to do X for me uh, because I'm visually impaired. So can you uh, can you bypass this CAPTCHA? And then it got the resources that it wanted. And so their own safety team is saying, we need to find you know boundaries for these things. Um, at the same time, anytime you put a boundary up, all you have to do is craft your, your prompt a little bit differently. The interesting thing, I think, from an AI art perspective, and I understand the, the ethical dile you know, dilemmas in all of that, but I think it also unlocks an entirely new era of disinformation and misinformation. We, we saw how good the Pope in the puffy white jacket looked uh, about a month ago. And um, before Trump's uh, arraignment, you that they had the, the AI-generated pictures of Trump being arrested, and that tricked a lot of people as well. Um, and there are those telltale, uncanny valley types of things. If you, if you zoom into the background, you can tell faces are distorted. And you can tell that there are some people with six fingers instead of five, or their hand, you know, their arms are the wrong length. But at a cursory glance, you know, with a headline and just that picture, and the the fact that most of us only look at that stuff for like five or ten seconds, it's probably good enough to pass and really shape public opinion. Do you do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that that kind of stuff scares me. The deep fakes, all that kind of stuff. The fact that we can manipulate video to to look and make it sound like somebody said something, that that is scary. Um, and and this is the stuff I worry about because I nobody ever uses this for good reasons, right? <laughs> like you don't do it to make a birthday message for your friend or something like that. Um, most of the time, it's used in this way to to trick people. And and that is very concerning. And and I think we're going to see more and more of that. And, you know, it, it's funny. I, I think we're going to have to go to a point where we really do have classes on digital literacy and we start treating people from a very young age on this. Um, and I've thought that for a long time. I'm like, you know what we need, to, you know, as someone who sees how easily it is to get tricked into these things, like, oh, my gosh, you know, I've. I, I've, it's happened to me. It's happened to all of us, right? Where we've, we've looked at something and been like, wait a minute, what? And then we have like, hopefully we do more research, um, but some of us don't. And because it, it's not important, right? The thing at the time seems not important. So, but that's, then that just lets you 
keep doing it, right? Um, you start to get used to that. And, and I think that's where it gets really dangerous is when you stop fact-checking, you stop fact-checking in a lot of other places too, right? You start to just accept things, um, especially when they're, um, they're being told by someone you trust. And, and actually, you mentioned Lynn McNeil. She has an article on this, and it's really great. Um, and she talks about how people trust the people they know. So if your friend posts something, you're more likely to believe it because you trust that friend. You know that person, right? That That is also problematic because we're also extending that network out, right? For folks like like us who are doing podcasts and and other uh, others that touch on the folklore space, any words of um, guidance or uh, you know what what would your hope as a professional academic folklorist be for the folks like us who are just kind of trying to figure it out as we go? You know how do we how do we put the right parameters on that? Yeah, I think you know definitely look at what you're reading, where it comes from, just like you would with anything else that we've talked about today. But I also think like ask people, like ask a folklorist. We're all out there on social media. The American Folklore Society is there. Um, you know, there's a lot of most countries have their own folklore societies. So ask those people. They're going to be willing to help. And yeah, reach out. Um, folklorists are always so excited to hear that people know about us. So <laughs> we're still like very excited to hear that people are interested in what we have to say. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Dr. Andrea Kida for spending time with us. Be sure to check out the show notes for tons of links and references to and about Andrea's work. If you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for a future episode, you can reach us at hello at eighthlayermedia.com. Or if you'd like information about sponsoring an episode, a few episodes, or maybe even an entire season, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Digital Folklore is created and produced by Eighth Layer Media. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.